This world is so racked with pain and suffering and injustice of all kinds. And it, like we've said a lot lately, speaks such a different word to us than what God's word does. It is good to be with you so that we can be reminded of what's true and most of all what Christ has done for us. So we're going to look to the Bible again this morning as we usually and always do here at CBC. And as we always do, we're going to look to it with God's help to behold his son and the promises that God has made to us in Christ. So let's pray to our good and faithful God now and ask him to be with us. Our Father, we come to you as always, not in strength or sufficiency in and of ourselves. We come sincerely in need. May we feel how needy we are. We come to you in weakness. May we feel how weak we are in and of ourselves. May we feel how insufficient and inadequate we are to be able to discern the things of God on our own. And Father, may we come to your word expectantly and full of hope because you're faithful and you teach us. We pray that you would come and do that again today, that you would show us yourself from your word. Show us what you are like. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would see him, that we would trust in the promises that you have made in him today. We pray for that in Jesus name. Amen. So whenever we come to the scriptures to read them, study them, preach them, whatever. A good question to ask is, so what? Like I've read these things. I've tried to process the information on the page. In our case today, I'm tracking with the narrative, but so what? What does this mean for us? Sometimes things are very much like on the face of the text, and it doesn't require a lot of work to answer that so what question. It's just obvious. But then other times, particularly, I think, in narrative sections of the scripture, it might not be so obvious all the time. Like we can read a passage of scripture like we did earlier this morning in this service it takes like 10 minutes and there are some things that we see, but then there's a lot of it where we might legitimately say, okay, well, what is God communicating here about himself? What is the big deal? Like 67 verses on Isaac and Rebecca. What's going on with these things? So what is a good question to ask? I think the tendency for many Christians and I think this is our tendency for a couple of reasons. One, it's sort of our natural instinct. But then also, I think we've been taught to do this. Many Christians seek to answer that so what question with things that we are to be doing. Full stop. Like the so what takeaway is always something for me to do. Or maybe we answer it with political or social concerns or a whole host of other things that are not altogether illegitimate. They're not. But there is something more primary. There is a better way to answer that so what question that is of first importance. I would suggest that we should seek to answer the so what question with respect to what a passage teaches us about God. With respect to what it teaches us about God and his character and his faithfulness and his steadfast love toward us. What does the text show us about that? Maybe even more pointedly, we seek to answer the so what question with respect to what a passage teaches us about Jesus and about God's plan to save us through him. So with all of that in mind, by way of introduction, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. You may already be there. You had about 10 minutes to find the text this morning, so hopefully your Bible drill skills are up to par. We're going to be looking today at Genesis 22 and verse 20 through 25. In verse 18, my plan is to preach the text in a relatively a decent clip in four points. And then I want to ask that so what question and reflect on a few things to close. So that's the general plan. Not that there will be no reflection in the first four points, but we're going to have some pointed reflection at the end. Point number one, I've entitled this a scriptural heads up. A scriptural heads up, point number one. We're going to be looking at verses 20 to 24 of Genesis 22. And public service announcement, this could possibly be the briefest point in a sermon that I've ever preached. 
So many of you will be proud of me that it's taken me this many years to get to the point where I can do something this succinctly. If you look at those verses, we see there's kind of a mini genealogy of the descendants of Abraham's brother, Nahor. And one of Nahor's sons has a daughter named Rebekah. So this is setting the stage for chapter 24 and what's going to come. It's as though the scripture is like, hey, heads up, take note of this woman named Rebekah, who is of Abraham's country and of Abraham's kindred. Thus concludes point number one. We're now on to point number two, which is the death and burial of Sarah and the purchase of some land. The death and burial of Sarah and the purchase of some land. We're going to be looking at chapter 23 for just a few moments together. If you put your eyes on verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, there in Genesis 23, you'll see that we've jumped ahead quite a bit, just chronologically speaking. Sarah dies at the age of 127. Now, many might remember that she was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. So just to give some perspective, Isaac is 37 years old at this point. So a lot has occurred. A lot of time has transpired. In the second part of verse 2, we're given a little geographical note. Abraham and Sarah are living in Hebron in the land of Canaan. Now, this is noteworthy. Now that Sarah has died, Abraham needs to like, find a place to bury his wife. And even though he has been promised that his offspring will be given the entire land of Canaan, and if you remember, God had even gone so far as to have Abraham walk the breadth of the land in chapter 13 to claim it as his own. Even with all of that, Abraham does not own a single piece of land in which he can bury his wife. He's got to go buy some. Just as, just another example of countless examples of God's people living life, trusting promises that God has made, even when they don't see them immediately coming to fruition, even when they don't see them immediately being realized, and even when their experiences preach a different word to them. Abraham is living by faith that this land is one day going to be given to his offspring because he, for crying out loud, has to buy some to just bury his wife. In verses 3 to 18, we've got the whole process of Abraham acquiring this land recorded for us. So there's a lot of back and forth here. Abraham goes before like local, regional magistrates, people of the Hittites, the rulers of the Hittites, to ask about acquiring property for a burying place. The Hittites seek to show Abraham honor as a man who is a prince among them. And then the inquiry narrows in on a cave owned by a man named Ephraim. Ephraim says that he will give Abraham the cave and the field area around it. Abraham refuses that and insists on paying for it. And then again, Ephraim tells Abraham that he will happily give him the land. For example, in verse 15, he says, the second time to Abraham, he's like, look, look, man, like, what is this between you and me? This land is worth like 400 shekels. What is that between us? Just take it and bury your wife. But then in verse 16, Abraham says, okay, 400 shekels it is. I will make that out to you. This will be an above board transaction and the property will be made over to me. That's what occurs in verse 16. And so, verses 17 and 18, the land is made over to Abraham as a possession. It's done in the presence of everyone. It's done according to every legal requirement, etc. It's done that way. The property now belongs to Abraham. In verse 19, Abraham buries Sarah in the cave of Machpelah near Hebron in the land of Canaan. And then in verse 20, it is reiterated yet again that the field and the cave were made over to Abraham as property. This whole business of Abraham insisting on buying the land versus just taking it as a gift, I think it has everything to do with the fact that he wants to do something that will give him and his kindred permanent access to this piece of property, not just depending upon the kindness of someone to say, oh yeah, we gave that to Abraham, but there's no legal record of it. Abraham and his family now legally even own a piece of this land that they had been promised. This cave that he purchased, this land that has this cave on it, is not only going to be the burying place of Sarah. It's going to be the burying place of Abraham and the burying place of Isaac 
and of Rebekah and of Jacob and of Leah. So this is a burial site of several of the most significant patriarchs and matriarchs of the nation of Israel. So suffice it to say that this site at Hebron becomes a significant geographical location for the people of Israel, second perhaps only to Jerusalem. We're now going to move on to point three as we just keep tracking with the narrative here. We're now going to look at chapter 24, point three, the story of Isaac and Rebekah. The story of Isaac and Rebekah. We will do a little bit of reflecting in this point, but it won't be very extensive. So we're told again at the beginning of chapter 24 that Abraham is very old. No kidding. We've learned that a number of times by now. At this point, Abraham, in terms of his centrality to the events that are transpiring, begins to sort of fade away. From this point forward in Genesis 24, Isaac is going to become the focus and then Jacob and so on. Abraham is going to die in chapter 25, but he's even fading away here in terms of the central figure of focus and emphasis. We're told that the Lord, again, this is back in verse 1 of chapter 24, we're told that the Lord has blessed Abraham in all things, and we're going to see some of that blessing play out in this chapter. The favor of God is upon Abraham. Regarding Isaac, as noted, he is close to 40 at this point. He's not married, which would have not been the norm, most likely in that context. And the fact that he is 40 years old nearly and not married at least has something to do, it seems, with Abraham being somewhat picky when it came to who his son would marry. Isaac was not going to marry just some Canaanite girl down the block. It doesn't seem in Abraham's mind. He wants Isaac to marry someone from the country of his kindred. And even with that, the fact that he wants Abraham to marry, or excuse me, wants Isaac to marry someone from his family, from his country, he's going to be adamant also that Isaac not live there, but that Isaac live in Canaan, in the land that the Lord would give them. It seems very clear that the promises of God are in Abraham's mind. He does not want Isaac going back to where Abraham was taken from. Isaac will live in Canaan, but he's not going to marry a Canaanite woman. That's basically what's going on here. In verses 2 through 9, we have this unusual oath between Abraham and his head servant. This servant that had been with him the longest amount of time was trusted by Abraham. This servant is to find a wife for Isaac from the land of Abraham's kindred. If the woman is not willing to come to Canaan, Isaac is not to go there. It's made crystal clear. The servant will be free from the oath if, one, he finds Isaac a wife and brings her back, or Two, if he finds a woman, but the woman is unwilling to come to Cain. Either way, the servant will have done his part of the deal. The oath is finally made in verse 9. And I just want to briefly comment on this because this oath that was made to us is unusual. Like this language of like, put your hand under my thigh and all that business. I'm going to try to be as clear about this as I can be. I am of the opinion, and many others are too, that that is a somewhat euphemistic translation for like Abraham's loins, for like his male organ. The reason is because, I'm going to get to that. Let me just pause for a second. I'm going to just acknowledge the strangeness of that. I mean, you're sitting here listening to me and you're like, homie, are you serious? I am serious. It seems strange to us, but let's talk about circumcision for a moment. I mean, circumcision is not a comfortable thing to talk about, literally, literally or figuratively. And there is quite a bit of the scripture that is clear about circumcision and the importance of it. What's going on here in Genesis 24? And for that matter, what's going on with circumcision? Why is the Lord having people make oaths this way? Why is the Lord concerned with like reproductive anatomy of the men of his people? Well, God has promised a redeemer. He has promised an offspring, singular, who would come and save God's people. And this promised offspring, the Messiah, would be from the physical offspring of Abraham. And while it may be uncomfortable for us to read, it is not odd, it is not strange in that sense that God would be so concerned with the reproductive organ of Abraham, given 
that God's promises would be realized through the Messiah who would be flesh and blood from Abraham's line. We tend to over-spiritualize things, and I think in some ways that doesn't help us because God oftentimes is very earthy and very flesh and blood in the way that he accomplishes his work. And it is through this flesh and blood Messiah from the lineage of Abraham that redemption would come. I mean, through him, it comes. All of the plans of God hinge on this man. And so it makes entire sense that God is concerned with how the line of Abraham will be continued. And so that's what's going on here, even in Genesis chapter 24. This whole business, this is important. Like draw your mind back out of that oath. It's kind of strange. We've talked about that and why God would work this way. Take your mind out of that and get back in thinking about the text. This whole business of finding a wife for Isaac. Why are there 67 verses about this? This whole business of finding a wife for Isaac and the provision of that wife has everything to do with God's faithfulness to keep his promises regarding Jesus. So when you see this and you see the line of Abraham being continued and there's all this concern for Isaac and who he will marry and how he will have children and with whom, it has everything to do not with Isaac, but with the promised offspring who's going to save us all. Read your Bible like that. In the introduction, I mentioned asking the so what question. We're going to ask it later at more length, but I do want to ask it briefly here. We have all of these details about this oath between Abraham and his servant, about the servant's journey and how he found Rebekah. There's a lot of repetition, like an unusual amount of repetition. It's a remarkable story. And the takeaway is not that every church should name its singles ministry the well, because that's where you go to find a spouse. Right? I mean, Sincerely, I'm joking, but seriously, for real, why this story? Why all of its detail? Why all of its repetition regarding the oath and finding a wife for Isaac? Could we have not done this more sufficiently? Like, does the Lord, in the way that he inspires men to write the scriptures, do we need a writing class? Like, let's get to the point. It's written this way. Because God is continuing to demonstrate to us in very earthly, flesh and blood, circumstantial ways that he always keeps his promises. That's why there's so much detail. We should read Genesis 24 and this whole business of Isaac. And the takeaway above all takeaways is that God is faithful. Always. He always does what he says. He is a God of covenant love who loves in an unswerving way his people and who is going to see to it that this promised redeemer will in fact come to save all of the people of God from all time. He will come from Abraham's line. He will come through Isaac. And so the Lord is going to provide Isaac with a wife. When God shows covenant love to Abraham and he shows covenant love to Isaac, Realize, saints, that he is showing covenant love to you. In all of these earthy, flesh and blood ways, God is working. In all of these ways, the entire point of that is Christ the Savior. Jesus has always been the only hope of the people of God. We've been thinking quite a bit about the life of Abraham and the life of Lot, for goodness sakes. And what their lives looked like. We've thought honestly about our own lives and how we are a riddle unto ourselves. We are a heap of inconsistency, says John Newton, right? This has always been the experience of the saints, that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Sometimes I do all right, and oftentimes I fail miserably. So too did Abraham, so too did Lot, so too did Isaac. So too do we. Jesus has always been the only hope of God's people. We 
just as Abraham did and Isaac did and Lot did and Sarah did and all of the saints from all time did. We need Christ to make satisfaction for our sins. We need Christ to keep the law and provide us with a righteousness that we flat out do not have on our own. Only Jesus could come and accomplish the plan of God to save us. It was always Jesus. It was never the people. We've got to get that straight. For the entirety of our Christian lives, saints, like fall into this. Rest here. For the entirety of our Christian lives, it is always and only Jesus. When we say that Christ is our righteousness, we don't mean that like he gives us some positional righteousness and then we've got to contribute our own. We mean that he is our whole and only righteousness that could ever be required of us before the Lord. Christ has provided it. He's given it freely. Come. And drink of the water of life without payment and without price. We trust Christ and we cast ourselves upon him. The confession of the Christian at conversion goes something like this. Were it not for Jesus and what he alone has done for me, I stand condemned. And the confession of the Christian every day thereafter goes something like this. Were it not for Jesus and what he alone has done for me, I stand condemned. Amen, somebody. In this story of Isaac and Rebecca, saints, it is not an overreach to say that in watching the providence of God, herein lies our salvation. Christ will come from this. Let's look back to the story. Verses 10 to 61 is this Lengthy recounting of the events. In verse 10, the servant heads to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He then stops at the well where the young women would go to get water. And beginning in verse 12, he prays to the Lord. He prays for the Lord to bless his endeavor and to show steadfast love to Abraham. It's a pretty remarkable prayer. He's asking God to superintend the situation so that it will be obvious who the woman is that God has for Isaac to marry. Verse 15, before he even finishes speaking, sometimes the Lord does work immediately. Sometimes he doesn't. But in this case, it's instant. Before he even finishes praying, Rebecca shows up. She ends up giving this servant water when he asks for it. And then offers water for his camels, just like the servant had prayed. It's interesting in this too, I mean, thinking about Rebecca and her kindness and even her hospitality. I mean, remember, like, dude's got 10 camels with him. And camels drink a lot of water. I mean, I haven't brushed up too much on my National Geographic lately, but I think it's something like tens of gallons of water a camel can drink after a long journey. And there's 10 of them. I mean, so she's working hard to try to give his camels water. And he's even commending herself in that sense as a hospitable and kind person. Verse 21, the servant, as all this is going down, as you might imagine, like you pray a prayer like this, this woman shows up, she looks the part, she's kind, she's doing what I prayed about. And the guy's just kind of like looking at her in silence, like this is wild. That's sort of my rendering of verse 21. Then Verses 22, 23, he gives Rebecca some jewelry, a ring for her nose and bracelets for her arms. And he asks her, whose daughter are you? And is there room at your place, your family's place where I could stay? And then she tells him who her father is and that there are provisions for him to stay the night. And the servant in verses 26 and 7 bows his head and worships the Lord because the Lord has so clearly answered his prayer. And has shown himself to be faithful and a God of covenant, steadfast love. He's done this thing for Abraham and for Isaac. That's what this servant sees in this whole business. Is the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. And he is right to see it. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. In this story, see that. Verse 28, Rebecca runs to tell her family what's happened. And then, beginning in verse 29, Rebecca's family welcomes the servant, gives him food. In verse 
33, he says, I'm not going to eat until I say what I need to say. I've come here on a mission. Got to get it off my chest. Got to tell you why I'm here. And then we can eat. So they say, tell us. In verses 34 through 48, the servant is going to tell Rebecca's family. Most pointedly, he's going to tell her parents and then her brother named Laban, who will show up again in the whole business of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and all that. We'll get there. He tells Rebecca's family, the servant does, who he is and why he came. And then he recounts for them in great detail what happened at the well. Like you guys need to understand how wild these circumstances are, how miraculous this is and what the Lord has done. Then in verse 49, he kind of gets to it. He says, all right, I've said my, my piece. I've told you why I'm here. I've told you who I am. I've told you what happened today. I've told you what I prayed, how the Lord answered. Are you going to show steadfast love to my master or not? What are you going to do? They respond in verses 50 to 51 by essentially saying, well, it seems, seems God has done this. We're not really sure what we can say. Then in verses 52 to 58, the servant gives Gifts to Rebecca and her family. He stays the night and the very next morning he's ready to roll. Like he's one of those ties ready to hit the road. I'm going to get back. I'm on a mission. I've accomplished it. I want to get back to my master. Understandably, Rebecca's brother and mother asked like, hey, can can we get like 10 days with her? Like maybe say bye or something. And the servant asks that they not delay him. So they ask Rebecca what she wants to do. You can see that. Verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. So they do. Will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. Big step for her, leaving her family and realizing I trust that she's not coming back. She will go. Verses 59 and 60, Rebecca's family sends her away with a blessing. And the words of this blessing echo the words that the angel of the Lord had spoken to Abraham in Genesis 22. So read this, verse 60. Our sister, this is Genesis 24, the blessing on Rebekah. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Well, what did the angel of the Lord say to Abraham in Genesis 22 and verse 17? He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Almost verbatim. Years later, Rebecca's family speak better than they know. The Lord is in this. It is his doing. And then in verse 61, Rebecca and her young women go with Abraham's servant. It is quite a remarkable story. The latter part of chapter 24 is when Rebecca and Isaac actually meet each other for the first time. The servant tells Isaac the whole story. You know, they're coming in on the caravan and Rebecca sees a man and Isaac sees them coming. The servant tells Isaac what's going on. And then Isaac took Rebecca into what was his mother's tent because Rebecca is now going to be the matriarch of the family. Sarah no longer is. Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife and we're told that Isaac loved her. And that in having Rebecca, he was comforted after the death of his mother. The Lord has kept his promises. The Lord is kind and good. He has showed steadfast love and kindness, not only to Abraham, but also to Isaac. Which brings us now to point four, the last point of our narrative section today, which is the death and burial of Abraham and a bit about his descendants. The death and burial of Abraham and a bit about his descendants from chapter 25. In verse 1 of chapter 25, we're told that Abraham takes another wife. Now, there's some debate as to whether this was while Sarah was still alive. In other words, was Keturah a concubine or was it after Sarah had passed away? Abraham was incredibly old at that point. Either way, it's clear in verse 2 that Abraham has six more sons with Keturah, this woman who has become his wife. We're told about those children. And then in verse 5, Abraham, it says, gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham realizes the significance of Isaac as the promised child. In verse 6, to the sons of his concubines, which I would understand that to be Hagar and Keturah, he gave gifts and sent them away. Then in verses 7 to 10, we have the death and the burial of Abraham. 
Again, this very powerful man, very wealthy man, this man who had quite the remarkable life, this man who was called out of paganism, made all of these promises by God, and saw over and over again the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord has now died. He dies at the age of 175. And it's interesting that Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury their father. And they bury him in the same cave with Sarah. Verse 11, put your eyes there really quickly in chapter 25. After Abraham is dead, the text tells us that God blessed Isaac, his son. Abraham is dead, but the promises of God are not. We have that underscored again, even in verses 12 to 18, in the genealogy of Ishmael. God, you remember, had also made promises to Abraham about him. Think back to Genesis 17 and verse 20, where the Lord says to Abraham, As for Ishmael, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. You can look here at Genesis 25, 16. And see that Ishmael did, in fact, father 12 princes. God had also promised Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and said, I will make of your son a great nation. And so he did. Over and over again, the scriptures bear witness that God does what he says. So now I want to transition to this question of, like, what does this mean for us? I want us to reflect and meditate on things that are significant from this section of Genesis. What's the significance of Sarah's death, of Abraham buying land to bury her and of her burial? What's the significance of Abraham's death and his burial? What's the significance of the fact that all these patriarchs and matriarchs of the nation of Israel will be laid to rest in this one place known as Hebron? So I want to begin first big reflection is on the land of Canaan. I want to reflect for a minute on the land of Canaan. It's been a thing here in this passage. Abraham has to buy a piece of this land that he's been promised. His wife is laid to rest in this particular place. He is going to be laid to rest in this particular place, as will a number of his descendants. And as I said earlier, underneath Jerusalem, I mean, this location becomes as significant for the people of Israel as any. The land that they've been promised by God and will be given by God is a massive thing in Israel's history. But think about the ebbs and the flows of Israel and the land of Canaan. They're going to be driven out of this land by famine when Jacob is alive with his 12 sons. The whole family is going to go down to Egypt. They will then be in bondage and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. I, that's a long time. You know, 400 years ago, we're talking the 17th century, to just put it in perspective. They will wander, even once delivered from slavery in Egypt, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years before taking the land. And then even when they enter it, God goes before them, but they are told that they are to rid the land of its inhabitants. And it is, at best, a mixed acquisition. There's a lot of just kind of cycles of Israel's sin and God sending them saviors, judges. The kingly line is established. The kingdom of Israel is established under Saul and then David and Solomon and so on. And after Solomon, we know that the kingdom is literally split in two. There's a lot of strife between the northern and southern kingdom of Israel and Judah, respectively. The northern kingdom is annihilated by the Assyrians, as we've thought about recently. The southern kingdom is flattened by the Babylonians, and the people of God are exiled from their own land. At that point, 586 BC, they are exiled from their own land. They will never again gain full control over that land, ever. Even at the time of Christ, when he shows up on the scene, the land, this promised land, is under the control of the Roman Empire. So, as significant as the geography may have been, 
as significant as the land of Canaan was to the people of Israel, as significant as this place called Hebron was to the people of Israel, the land of Canaan was always a temporary gift. It was temporary until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham. And so once Christ came and fulfilled all the promises of God to his people, the land of Israel, the actual physical geographical land had no more theological significance. Like that sounds offensive to some people. Many Christians, when they talk about Israel today, say things that frankly are not very well informed from the scriptures. When they talk about the physical geographical place. Christians will talk about a certain parcel of land in the Middle East and call it the holy land. Many people make trips to Israel, and I think that's a super fun thing to do. It sounds like a, like a dope trip to take. I would love to go just to see it, right? But understand, if you're going to Israel, understand what you're going to see. You are going to see a place where real historical things happened that had to do with our salvation. But it is not as though we are making some pilgrimage to Mecca where we have some special kind of fellowship with God there that we don't have elsewhere on planet Earth. Speaking from the perspective of the covenant promises of God, the entire world would be blessed by the promised offspring of Abraham. And so it is. All over the world, Christ is preached. All over the world, his table is administered. All over the world, people are baptized. All over the world, the saints gather for those things and to sing and to pray. And the Lord shows up to minister to his people. God has promised to be uniquely present for us in this. What we're doing even here this morning and what many other Christians are doing all around the world right now and will be doing today. So kind of putting a bow on this little piece and thinking about land and holy land and how ought we categorize these things in our minds. If you want to encounter God, do not go on a pilgrimage. If you want to encounter God, show up with his people to sit under his word, to sing of our Savior, to pray, and to come and eat of the meal that is our spiritual food. The land of Canaan, number one, served as the land where the nation of Israel would be situated, the nation that would give birth to the Christ. And number two was always a shadow. It was never the point. It was always a pointer to the final salvation that the Savior would accomplish, which brings us to the second reflection, which I think is even more significant. This is how we will conclude our time. We're going to think together about death, about burial, and about resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. We see all of these things either recorded or underneath the passage that we've looked at today. So, big deal. This text we read today, Abraham, Father Abraham is dead. So is Sarah. The one to whom all of these promises were made is in the ground. Lifeless. So what then about the promises of God? We talk a lot about Christ's work of redemption, and we should. It's critical that when we talk about redemption, we need to own the fact that redemption is not ultimately about now. You realize that. I'm as prone as anyone to think about redemption and the things of God in a way that, like, where the rubber meets the road now. What does it mean now? I trust that I'm not alone in that. I don't know about you, but the fact that every one of us is going to be put in a six-foot hole in the ground is a pretty haunting reality. So the question is, have the promises of God done anything about that? I mean, Abraham knew the Lord and he's in the ground. Has the Savior done anything about that? 
Well, yes, he has. The question that I sometimes will ask people to highlight this reality that we're talking about. Think in your mind, how many good songs have been written about the new heavens and the new earth in the last 50 years? Not many. That's because the modern church is so often earthbound in its theology. We become very earthbound, even in talking about doctrine of God. May it not be so here. There is a hope, saints, that we have been called to that is far greater than we can conceive of or imagine. And we need to remind ourselves of that regularly. I mean, I think, you know, in God's providence, what's going on in Afghanistan reminds us of things like this. The suffering that people have known in our own land in the last several years of various kinds remind us of this. That if this life is all this is, if we are hoping in Christ for this life only, we are above all people to be pitied. Death is frightening. It haunts humanity. That's obvious. Why is it so frightening? It's a great conversation to have with somebody that you work with. Why is it that death frightens us all? Well, because it's not natural. It's not natural. You're hearing me say that and you're like, what do you mean? Because death is a part of life. True. But it's not natural. Death is the wages of sin. Death is natural after the fall, but it was not always that way. We were not made to die. You know that. So do I. The way we were made, the thought of just ceasing to be, it just doesn't compute. When it comes to the deterioration of our bodies, when another human being breathes their last, everything about all that in us rises up to say, it shouldn't be this way. This is wrong. And as we've thought about recently, God is not indifferent to our pain. He is certainly not indifferent to the deaths of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116, 15. Sarah's death. She dies at 127 years old. It's recorded in the scriptures. Sarah's death was precious in the Lord's sight. So was Abraham's at 175 years. So will yours be, should Christ tarry. And so will mine, should Christ tarry. On the one hand, when we think about burial, and you think about a funeral service, it's a sobering thing. Our bodies are put into the earth we were made to reign over. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. But burial for the Christian is not a hopeless thing. Because death for us now, as frightening as it may be, does not have the final word. The testimony of the scripture and our word to each other at the burial of a saint is that God is not done with this body that is being put in the ground. You see, nothing short of bodily resurrection is the realization of the plan that God has for us. Now, I say this today, full transparency. I was 23, 24 years old before anyone had ever made it plain to me that we would be bodily resurrected. I grew up in a church context where it was all just sort of assumed that we would be disembodied spirits in some kind of ethereal paradise. Nothing short of your body being resurrected and united with your spirit, transformed fully into the image and likeness of Christ. Nothing short of that is the realization of God's promises and plans for you. That's a shocking and astonishing and thrilling, hope-giving thought. He does not just promise us stuff so that our lives are better now. He doesn't just promise us stuff so that we can bear up under suffering now. He has a goal called bodily resurrection, transformity into the image and likeness of Christ. 
when we die, we will be with the Lord. Amen. We will be at rest. And we will still be awaiting the consummation of our redemption, namely the resurrection of our bodies. So whatever that intermediate state is, it's paradise, it's restful, it's perfect, there's no pain. That's true. And redemption is not consummated until bodies are ripped from the grave. How tragic that bodily resurrection is an often neglected doctrine in the contemporary church. How tragic it is the way so many Christians even talk about our bodies. You all may be familiar with that song, I'll Fly Away. It's a terrible song. Terrible song. Because implied in that song is that what really needs to happen is that we need to be delivered from these earthly prisons called our bodies. And then all will be well. That is contra Bible. The scriptures bear witness to the fact that God made us with bodies and said that was good. And God the Son, for crying out loud, took on flesh and entered the world, has a body still and will forever have a body. So when you go to a funeral and you hear a preacher say, it's Bobby's funeral, that this body here in the casket is not Bobby, you are not wrong in thinking that's ridiculous. Because it is. It's a part of him. And that, if Bobby's in Christ, Bobby's body will be resurrected, imperishable, and incorruptible. And he will be made like Christ and we'll see him. We ought not speak in ways that are inaccurate and rob us of the hope that we have in Christ. We will not be disembodied spirits playing harps on clouds. Praise God, that's true. We will be bodily resurrected, imperishable, meaning we will never, can never die again. We will be bodily resurrected, incorruptible, meaning we will never sin or want to again. Living in a new earth with a life that is just as physical as this one, but in perfect fellowship with God and each other. Devoid of pain, devoid of suffering, devoid of sin. These are the promises of God to us. And we don't have to doubt whether they'll be answered. Final few moments. Think with me. Because of the fall, because of sin, death has a claim on us. Sin has a claim on us. And Satan has a claim on us. Because of the fall, the original sin. You realize, though, that none of those things had a claim on your Savior. Death had no claim on him. Sin had no claim on him. Satan had no claim on him. But think about what he did for you and me willingly. I can't say it better than the writer to the Hebrews wrote it. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You bet he does. Because... We share in flesh and blood because we're enslaved to Satan, because death has a claim on us and we live in terror of the grave. Christ partook of flesh and blood for us. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who didn't deserve to die was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the one who would never know death himself because he didn't deserve it. I should say it that way. He didn't deserve to know death in his own standing. Willingly took death upon himself. He willingly gave his life 
in order to conquer death. In order to take away its sting. He willingly died in order to conquer the one who has the power of death, namely the devil. Your enemy and mine, the great accuser of the brethren, stands defeated as it stands today. And Christ did that, yes, out of obedience to his father, because he and his father had made a covenant. And at the same time, he did it because he loves his people. Saints, we, we talk about this a lot. By faith, we are united to Christ. We are in him. Everything that's his is ours. All the saints of all time have been united to Christ. And because the grave could not hold him, it will not hold Sarah. It will not hold Abraham. It will not hold us. Jesus is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. Promises of atonement, your sins paid for. Promises of absolution, your guilt removed. Promises of forgiveness, you are forgiven, are as shocking of words as could be spoken to a sinner. Promises of righteousness, That God looks at you and says, just, on the basis of Christ. Promises of bodily resurrection. Promises of a land. Land promises are a big deal. But it's not about Canaan. In Christ, we will be given a land forever, and it's going to be called the new earth. Promises of a kingdom that will never be shaken. Heaven will come down. And God will dwell with us. We will see the Lord. We will see Christ. And we will be like him. He will be our shepherd. He will wipe away our tears. And he will take care of us forever. Those are the things that we remind ourselves of. In this life that is full of pain. That's full of injustice. That's full of suffering. That's how we live with the end in view. May that be how we live with one another always, even as we depart from this place today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the promises that your word contains. If we're honest, we live life afraid of so much. We live life haunted by so much. Many in the room are perhaps mindful of... The good times and are thankful for them and at the one, on the one hand are afraid of them going away. Father, we thank you that you promise us something that cannot be shaken, that will never die. We pray that you would give us faith, that we would trust Christ most of all, but that we would cling to every promise that you make us in your word. We need your grace to do that and we pray that you would give it to us. We pray that we would regularly remind one another of your utter and complete faithfulness to us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.